So if you notice on your sheets this morning, I'm following, I really like the way Cliff has brought forward this idea of what does everybody really want. In fact, I don't know if you happen to have seen, I just started watching a little bit, but with uh, the God series, um, and I forget what the name of it is, what's the full name, and, and, and uh, pardon me, yeah, with Morgan Freeman, yeah. And anyway, he starts off by saying, you know, the number one question everybody always asks. Anybody seen it and know what it is? What's the number one question? What happens after we die? Right? That's what everybody's asking. But really, while we're alive, I think Cliff's got it right. More people want to say, number one, class, is there a God? If there is a God, what is his nature? What does God expect of me, and what can I expect of God? I think that's a really great way to frame conversations, either with yourself in self-discipleship, self-confrontation, or also in discipling others. I think that's a really, really good way to think about it. Today, I'm looking at the nature of God. I'm looking at something that Cliff has actually talked about. It got me interested, and then I heard Terry Fake speak just a piece on this, and he made the comment. I was listening to him on a tape, or on, no, we don't do tapes anymore, boy. I was listening to him, listening to him on a podcast, and he, and he commented that, um, you know, we used to say, when we listened to tapes, we used to say people were tapeworms, but can't use it anymore. They don't even have any idea what that tape means, but... Um, he said, you know, the idea of if you really understand God's names, you understand God better. So I decided to work a little bit on that, on a lesson, and that's the result of what you're seeing here today. Um, so I'm going to start, though, with a question, and the question's there on your paper. By the way, you know, I, I put there, if there is a God, what is his nature? I always wanted to put, and we probably should, you ought to put a little carrot mark to add in there. If there is a God, and in parentheses, and there yeah. is, <laughs> then what is his nature? But the question I ask is the one down there, uh, if you notice where I say, uh, if you were asked to write down one major theme, one major thread that goes all the way through scripture, what would you write down? That's a question that I'm asking you right now. I want to hear some answers. What is a theme that you would write down that threads its way all the way through Scripture. If somebody said, what's the Bible really all about? Okay, so I heard somebody say love. Why would you say that? The theme of, if you're going to say the one theme that I want to track all the way through the Bible is love, why would you say that? Okay, that is the central nature or that is... The nature, or is it a nature? It's God, many things, but we certainly understand God to be love. I would suggest to you that is a really good theme. And that is a theme that today we really thread through Scripture. We really are about, as a society of Christians, to say God is love. We want to kind of press that forward. That's not always been the case with the church. They've not always seen God in that way. But that is a theme we would use today. I would agree with that. What other themes might you place through Scripture? That he's awesome, okay? What else? Reconciliation. 
reconciliation. These are very common things. When I ask this question, I get these very similar answers. The grace we receive, grace is always a great theme. The grace we, we receive, obviously undeserved, right? Undeserved grace. That's a good theme. Anybody else? Any other thoughts? Forgiveness. A great theme that you see all the way through Scripture. Now, again, I want you to think of your theme, and these are all good themes. There's not a, just a single answer to this question. But when you're discipling others, when you're working with others, you need to, to keep them focused on a theme that you're working on. Otherwise, they're going to get confused. It is confusing when, you know, I didn't come to Christ until I was in my early 20s, and it took me about a year of somebody discipling me before I had any idea what had occurred. I thought every day I better accept Christ in my life. I just didn't know what I had a hold of. And I've come to realize that often God brings us, we have this faith that brings us to that point of, and God credited to him as righteousness, whatever point in your walk that that occurred where you suddenly went from unsaved to saved. But I, I now look back and realize when I got to the point that I was saved, I still didn't understand what had happened at all. God works on you for a while before you even have any idea what's really happened. And you get, a, you get a lot of stuff wrong, but you begin to mature and that all starts to happen. If God expected us to know it all before we came to salvation, few or any of us would ever get there. Amen? That's not the way it works. So think in terms of the theme. Think in terms of what you're trying to do either for yourself, again, in self-confrontation, self-discipleship, or when you're trying to disciple others. Here's a theme that I'm going to look at today. And I'm going to say, I'm, I'm an engineer, as most of you know. As an engineer, we don't call them themes. We call them a hypothesis. We say this is what we think is really this piece is all about. This is how this works. This is how this looks. And a hypothesis, we then look at all the information and we say, does the information back up the hypothesis? Does the information back up the theme? Well, my theme that I now use a lot when I'm talking to somebody else is that throughout Scripture, from Genesis 1-1 all the way through the end of Revelation, that God is demonstrating that he wants a close, personal relationship with each one of us. God wants a close, personal relationship with you. Now, the question is, does, does the Bible as a story, as a informational piece all the way through, does that get backed up? Well, I'm going to do it through the names that God uses. When you, when you have a, somebody come along, maybe a new friend, you begin to expose yourself to that person. How do you do that? When you first meet somebody that... You look later and say, ooh, they've become a good friend. But when you first meet them, what do you say? Hi, I'm. And then you give your name. I'm Terry, right? And they hopefully give their name and you introduce. But later you might say something like, oh, because friends come out of typically shared 
experiences, and you go, oh, I'm a dad, or I'm a grandfather, or I'm an engineer. That'll really put me in a category, right? But it helps, it helps to explain who I am. I think God did the same thing, does the same thing in Scripture. Where did he first expose himself? First time, Genesis 1, verse 1. And how, what does it say? In the beginning, God. Well, the challenge we have, and I'm not going to be nearly as good at this as a scholar like Cliff would be, because there are hundreds, if not you know, several hundreds of names that God uses through Scripture. But if we don't realize that we translate into English God and Lord and we really don't get the meaning behind the meaning. We don't get the, the idea that, oh, that's dad, or that's engineer, or that's husband, or, you know, friend, or whatever. We miss it. That word that he starts with in, that, in the beginning is the word Elohim. The El is, the, is what we translate into God in English, but the Elohim is more of a generic term for God. And so if you see Elohim and it is used for the one God as a description, you'll always see capitalization. If you see Elohim used and it's used for other gods or important men or maybe an important judge or an important ruler, Elohim is still the word used, but it's used in small letters. But it's the same word. So when God says, I'm Elohim, everybody goes, okay. That means, and by the way, Elohim here means it's the supreme one or the mighty one. So in your blanks there, in your first blanks, that Hebrew meaning of that is supreme one or mighty one. So God says, I am the supreme one. And everybody goes, okay, I get that. And that's how Adam was introduced. Adam would have said, oh, God, Elohim, you're the supreme one, you know. And he would have understood that to be the case. But as people started to use the word, they would have gone, well, other people call themselves Elohim too. Other people call themselves dad. So how do you differentiate from that? So you take forward, you move forward, and you go, all right, what did God, what was his next big showing to somebody to say, here's something different about me? And it really occurs when he introduces himself to Abram. Where does that occur, by the way? Where do, just, just a little quiz here. Cliff never does this to us, but where's, where does Abram and God meet up first time? Where? First off, what book? Genesis. Genesis. Anybody remember the chapter? 12, and it starts right at the beginning of 12. That's where they meet up. And when he meets in 12, he uses the word Elohim. That's the same God when God introduced himself to Abram. He also, in that same starting point as he's talking to him, he also uses uh, a, a piece that technically is called a... Uh, Tetragrammaton, Tetragrammaton, it's a four-letter, it's what we describe as Yahweh. Yahweh, when you hear that, would have been, uh, at the time, another way for them to describe, now we're going to talk about Yahweh a little bit more later, but it was being used also in Genesis, 
But it was really a, whereas, whereas Elohim was God, but God as a more of a generic term, Yahweh was more of this divine nature of God, this what is God really? They were trying to, to give a better definition and understand who God really was, this, this one God, who he really was. So they begin to use the word Yahweh, but they saw it. Yahweh was, was used in this something out there, something that I can't grasp, something that's so above me I can't get a hold of. That was when they used that word. So both Elohim and Yahweh would have been known to Abram. But now Abram is how old when he's introduced? Just to remind ourselves of the story. How old is Abram when he gets introduced to God? Come on, class. Some of you know. 75. 75 if you look there in 12. There you go. Now here's the bigger question. How old was Sarai? Remember, they're not Sarah and Abraham yet, but just Sarai and Abram. But how old was Sarai? About how much? I heard somebody say it, about 66. We don't know for sure nine or 10 years, but she was about 66. And God tells Abram, I'm going to make you into a great nation. What was the first thought that would have come to your mind? How's that going to happen? Now, I have to tell you, he probably was thinking because men, even men today can have children, certainly into their 70s. I know I met a man whose grandfather was 210 years younger than he. That his grandfather had his father when he was 72. His father had him when he was 73. He was in his 60s. So 200 and some years had passed in between those generations. That was kind of unusual to me. But that was not unusual, certainly even in the U.S., because this was a United States person. Actually, it was one of the presidents. Um, Tyler, who had done this, he had married again after his first wife died. They wanted to have many children, and so they often would take a much younger wife for that second wife to have more kids. So that was not unusual, but the women would have thought at 66, I certainly hope not, right? right? <laughs> Even though I don't like menopause, I certainly hope not, right? And that had to have been in their mind, but that's when they first meet. He says, you're going to be in uh, you know, person may now God, if you read enough about him, you realize he wants to take out any possibility that any of this could have happened through man's doing, right? So what's God do with Abram? Abram's probably thinking, okay, I need to get this started right away, right? But we don't see really Abraham reconnect to God again in scripture until about, I think it's Genesis. 14 or is it 15? I think it, maybe it's 15, where we have this smoking fire pot, where they have the covenant. Ten years have passed approximately. Abram's now in his, in his early 80s, and nothing has happened. He's left. He's gone to Haran. He's done the wandering. God has keeps showing him where to go. He's ended up over in the promised land, doesn't fully understand what's going on, but he's probably getting worried, and so God comes back around to him and says, hey, Abram, here I am again, and he uses the same word. It's still Elohim in 15. But he does a covenant with him to really try to help solidify the idea that I am going to make you into a great nation. But that's all he knows name-wise. He's still thinking, okay, Elohim or this divine nature, this I can't really relate to Yahweh. And he does the covenant. 
And you'd think, wow, that really kind of solidified it down. But the next thing you see Abram doing is what does he do? He goes, well, maybe God needs a little help. And so he has a son by his concubine. And we go through that whole story. And then another 10 years pass, and now Abram is 99 years old. 24 years have passed. He's still living on, God, what are you telling me you are? You're telling me you're Elohim. You're telling me you're God. I understand this Yahweh, this divine nature. But he's obviously struggling a little bit to try to figure all this out, how this is all working. God is still credited to him as righteousness, just like he did me when I came to salvation. But he's still struggling, just like I was. Well, God, what do you really like? And again, remember my theme was God wants a close, personal relationship with you. And Abram's going, well, I'm still struggling a little bit to understand that. So you come to 17.1, and God now approaches Abram again and says, a new name. The problem is, is it doesn't get translated, but to, it just simply says in 17.1 there, it says, um, I am what in 17.1? Abram was 99 years old, the Lord... The Lord there was, the, the term Yahweh, appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God, God Almighty. The, the translation is one that you'll know because Amy Grant made a song of it. And that is El Shaddai. El Shaddai. So El means God. Shaddai means Almighty. And what you have to understand is what would that have meant to Abram? This is God introducing a new name to Abram. It had never been used before, this El Shaddai. And it is this concept of he is our sustainer. And, and what I wrote down here, God who freely gives nourishment and blessing, he is our sustainer. God is completely nourishing, satisfying, supplying. It's, it apparently comes from a root where it's this idea of a child uh, nursing from her, from from their mother, the his or her mother's breast, this getting sustenance, and God says to Abram, "I want you to see that I am your sustainer. Nothing else do you need to do. All this other stuff that you keep thinking about, I want you to know that I am no longer just Elohim. I am El Shaddai. Does that make sense? Does that fit with the idea that God?" is trying to show Abraham that I want a close, personal relationship. Introducing a new part of who God is. And it goes on, if you follow through Genesis, that same El Shaddai, that word, is used with Isaac, and it's really emphatically used with Isaac's son, Isaac's son, Jacob, and Jacob uses it all the way through to the end and his final blessing to his sons, that his sons would have grown up with dad going, you know who this God is? This God is El Shaddai. That's what he would have, they, they would have heard that over and over and over. What's interesting is I, I never really heard it from the sons. I don't hear it uh, a lot from Joseph. He would have understood that to be, but I don't see scripture saying that. But Jacob certainly had bought into that. In fact, when he wrestled with God, when he really got serious with God and God got him to where he broke Jacob's will, 
and really Jacob, you know, really was his major turning point in his life. He comes along and he tells him again, I am El Shaddai at that point. So this El Shaddai was very strong through Abram, Isaac, and Jacob, those three generations. And the sons of Jacob would have known that word very well. They would have understood God. Your children, your grandchildren, there's a lot of things that they know about the world because of the way you see it. You share with them how you see it. They remember things. Anybody ever tell you, boy, that sounds just like looking at something you do, and they go, wow, that reminds me of your mother or your grandmother, right? It's the same idea. They would have had the same idea that Jacob would have had this, I think, big influence, and they would have seen this El Shaddai. So now we go forward again, all the way through the end of Genesis, or I'm sorry, through, through Joseph's story in Genesis, and we're getting towards the end, and all of a sudden we find, obviously the Israelites have come back from the promised land, they've been pulled down, the 50 or 60 of them, through Jacob's family, back to Egypt when there was a famine. They, the Pharaoh says, hey, why don't you settle right here? Time has passed, they've multiplied, new Pharaohs come along, and they've become what? They become slaves because the new pharaoh is so afraid of the way they're multiplying. And so that, that approximately 2 million people that were there at the time, they were all in slavery, and God says, okay, I need to do something else. And what's the next big story? Where he exposes himself. Who's the main character? Moses. Moses. See, I'm just trying to help you see that God has a very specific plan exposing himself along the way to try to show us that he really wants a close, personal relationship. So Moses comes along. Moses thinks he's God's gift to man. No pun intended there. But he thinks he is. So he, he comes along and says, okay, I can be in charge. I've been raised up in, the, in Pharaoh's family and he goes out and thinks to help the Hebrew people, I'll use physical, you know, uh, uh, my, my, my ability to be in control. And he kills the, he, uh, the Egyptian and finds out real fast he's not in control at all. By the way, one of, one of the aha moments for me in my life, in my maturity, was when I came to the realization that if I thought that I was in control of my life, I was sadly mistaken. God says you only have trust and faith you have little control of your life you think you do but you are sadly mistaken that was kind of an aside but I think that's what happened to Moses Moses came to that conclusion Moses thought he'd messed up so bad he just went off and went living and thought I'll just die out here being a shepherd gets married 40 years out and he thinks nothing's going to happen. Quite frankly, that's some of my testimony that I could share with you. I felt some of that through my life, through periods, not through, maybe through 40 years, years total, but through smaller bits and pieces where I felt, you know, gosh, I have so messed up that God's not going to be able to use me anymore. And all I can tell you is that's just not the case. Moses is a really good example of that. But, you know, Moses comes along and God says, okay, I need to expose myself now to Moses as to what I really want. And where does Moses get exposed to God? At the burning bush. You guys know your Bible. Good for you. So at the burning bush. And at the burning bush, we're here in, in um, Exodus uh, 6, uh, verse uh, 2 and 3 there is, is what I'm indicating there. Um, 
And God spoke to Moses and said, I am the Lord, but in this case, this Lord in your parentheses there is Yahweh. And by the way, that's the same word Jehovah. Jehovah, I used to always wonder how Jehovah came out of Yahweh. I'm not, you know, I was never sure. I finally looked it up. Uh, the the uh, the Googling allows you to do things that I would otherwise I'd have to be a cliff to have that kind of scholarly knowledge. I don't, but I'm able to look it up. And what it came from, or at least what I understand, is the Tetragrammaton that, that began to be used. By the way, this wasn't always used. It was only in about the 3rd or 4th century B.C. that they begin to see this God in such a way, this divine nature, that they didn't even want to put the word down. They didn't want to put the word Elohim down or the, the, that God when they were trying to show his divine nature. And so they began putting down just this Tetragrammaton, the four letters Y, let's see, I got to get this right. Y, what I write? Y-H-W-H. I never can remember that. Y-H-W-H. Well, the Y apparently doesn't have a, a, uh, an alphabet in the Greek language, and therefore it uses either the I or a J was the same way. And so the J came out, and they would have a, they would have a vowel after each one, so instead of saying the consonants, it came out as it would it would have been like I want to say Yehoah Yehoah would have been the sounding of it when you look at it as as just trying to pronounce it. But then you put the J in instead of the Y on the front end, and it became Jehovah. That's where the Jehovah came from. But it comes from those four letters, and that means the same thing. But that's that's the I am the Lord. That's what God is saying to Moses. And he says, I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, which would be El Shaddai. I hope you walk away today saying, I'm never going to read that word, Lord God, or other things in there the same way. I'm always going to try to look up and say, what was the real meaning? Because otherwise you don't fully understand what's being said. Uh, as God Almighty, El Shaddai, but by my name, the Lord, which again is Yahweh or Jehovah, I did not make myself known to them, to Jacob or to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But you go, well, wait a minute. Yahweh was used in Genesis earlier. They certainly knew him that way. Why would God, whether it's El Shaddai or Jehovah or Yahweh, why would he say as Yahweh, I had not made myself known to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. How could that be a true statement? When in fact you know that he had made himself known because people were using the word. What do you think? If I'm going to make myself known, if, if I'm going to make myself known to Cliff, I might come up and Cliff and I know each other through class. We don't know each other outside of class. But I might introduce Cliff to somebody and say, wow, this is Dr. Cliff Sanders. He is so-and-so. But he's really not known to me. Why would I say that? Because he and I have not lived life together. We have not shared experiences. And so this, I have not made myself known, that phrase is the same phrase. And when you follow that phrase through Old Testament, 
and through Genesis, you see God using it in the same way. It's this idea that I am going to show you who I am by personal experience. I have never shown humanity yet, somebody that I'm close with, that Yahweh, that Jehovah is a close personal God. They see Yahweh, Moses would have seen Yahweh as what? This divine, can't get a hold of, can't grasp. How we may be seeing God, as a matter of fact. We can't get a hold of him. He's just too, too big for me to think about. Yahweh, God says, El Shaddai was there. That was your ancestors. But now I'm going to show you that this word Yahweh, that this person Yahweh, he wants a close personal relationship. Well, how did he do it? What did he tell Moses? Let me show you who I am. How can we, if Cliff and I were really going to get to know each other, what would we start to do? We'd start to hang out and we'd start to do stuff. And I would see things that he's good at and he would see things that I'm good at and there'd be some shared things in there. Well, so what's God do first to show Moses what he's like? What's some of the big things? How about the 10 plagues. Is that a big deal? Would that say, let me show you who I am? By showing experiences, he's going, let me show you who I am. So he goes through those, then he leads them out into the Exodus, splits the Red Sea, and he goes, let me show you what I can really do. And then he shows them, you need water? Just tap the rock, you know? You need food? I can, bring you, I can bring you angel food. We call it manna, but it was really angel food. Angel food cake. That was the first angel food cake coming down. <laughs> so you, you, you look and you go, God is exposing himself to the Israelites, and he says, I want you to see that I want to have a close personal relationship because they didn't understand that they had no relationship at all in fact they struggled with it because Moses is over here on the mountain and they kept saying Moses you deal with God we don't want to deal with him they were struggling to get that close personal relationship with him and I think it's because of part of that then they started this cyclical nature God had say if you obey me if you follow what I tell you then I will bless you and if you don't then I will curse you, I'll punish you. And you see the cyclical nature. God comes up with the, the laws, the Levitical laws, all of that system. We go all the way through the Old Testament and you see the cycling going on and on and on. Then we go 400 years of silence after Malachi, or Malachi, I always want to say Malachi, but Malachi. Um, well, you have to realize my oldest son, he learned to speak phonetically, learned to read phonetically. And one time he said, Dad, I said, I came home and I don't know, he was about fourth grade. And I said, what are you studying today? And he said, I studied Butchinen. And I went, Butchinen? I don't know Butchinen. And finally I realized he was studying President Buchanan. So, but it was Butchinen. <laughs> so Malachi fits right into me on that idea. So anyway, they get through the end. And God, he knows what's going on here. He knows that he's going to have to do more. He already knew the whole plan, but he's exposing us to himself. He's first said, I'm Elohim. Then he says, I'm El Shaddai. Then he says, let me show you that Yahweh is a close personal God. Did they get that? They didn't get it. 
They didn't get it. So he says the next step is where Cliff has been instructing us the last couple of months. And that is, he says, I've got a next plan. And let's see, did I get, oh, let me, let me back up, by the way. This is an important piece. I forgot to insert this in here. With Moses, when he is talking to him at the burning bush, he says to him, or Moses says to God, who should I say sent me? And God says, say, I am. Did that ever confuse anybody? That just doesn't sound grammatically correct at all. Like, how is I am a noun, you know? And I had to go back and, and look at and study what does that really mean? Well, here's the interesting piece. The, the word translated to I am, you have to go look. This is why it's so important to have an interlinear, and you can do that online now. It's so easy to jump in there and get on the, uh, get on the uh, interlinear and say, show me the different spots that this translation occurs. Well, you go back, and at the beginning, you see, and God said, let there be the let there be those three words together is exactly the same translation, same word, I am. When he said in, uh, in the Genesis uh, 2, 7, and the man became a living being, became is exactly the same word, I am. And you realize what God is saying is, I didn't create light, I am light. I didn't create life, man, I am life. That life is there because I am. And so the Israelites would have understood that word. They would have seen that word. They would have used that word. And so when he said, say, I am sent me, Moses would have gone, whoa, okay, I got that. I, I know what you're saying there. I never understood that real clearly. But the I am is God saying, that is who sending you. This person who is said, let there be, and God and man became, that's me. That's who's coming to you. So now, jump forward to the New Testament. God says, I know you're struggling to figure out who I am, but I want you to know, really, I'm serious about having a close, personal relationship with you. So he says, I'm going to send my son. I'm going to send me. I'm going to send I am. Because, and, and it says in the scripture there, Matthew in the 123, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. That's what we've been studying, this incarnate idea with Cliff for the last several weeks. But now it is God with us. Boy, how close and personal are Cliff and I getting if I say, Cliff, I'm going to move in with you? <laughs> I mean, you can, you can, you can, <laughs> you can put up a facade, you can put up a facade pretty well, but when you get moving in with somebody, it gets 
down and dirty, right? I, just a, a, again, I, I have three sons, all three married. One of them married Elizabeth, and Elizabeth first became a friend within the family before she became one of the family. In other words, she didn't date initially. She came in during her college days. We'd known her parents, and she just said, hey, do you guys mind? They had done a vacation with us, and she came up afterwards, and she said, do you mind if I just come over and hang out with you? I just need a place to hang out because I've never had anything but sisters. And I said, hey, you can come and hang out all you want, right? And I mean, for three years, it was just like having a daughter with three sons. And they treated her just like a sister. She had never been had that interaction. She'd go out on a date or she'd go out for, for coffee, meet some guy for coffee, and she'd come back. And they say, how was your date? Oh, no, no, it wasn't a date. You know, girls like to say that a lot of times. And, and my boys would go, well, did they do this? Did you talk about this? Was this going on? Yeah, it was a date. Let me tell you, in the guy's mind, it was a date. But when God brought Elizabeth and my son Peter together and they started to date, they got engaged fairly quickly after that. And they were concerned because they got engaged pretty quickly. And they came to us and asked us about it. And I said, you got to do this in a really unique way. You got to know each other, be exposed to each other without rose-colored glasses on. And that's really when Jesus came down and lived with the 12 and got serious with the three, he said, I want to have a close personal relationship. I want to live with you for three years. I want you to see what I am like. How big a deal was that to those 12? Taking Judas out, replacing with that is those 12 God used to change the world, right? Because they came to such a close personal relationship, they knew what was going on. But what was interesting is in the middle of all that, and let's see if I've helped you because some of you guys always want blank. So, yeah, it's just God with us. Oh, and at the end, I, I do indicate there. See that John 1, 5 to 9 reference? I thought this was interesting. John 1, uh, 5 to 9. The light shines in the darkness. Uh, uh, Jesus came as a witness to bear witness about, or I'm sorry, John came as a witness to bear witness about the light. What's that light he's describing? Jesus, right? And that same let there be light, God is now demonstrating and saying the same words. I am light. And Jesus is described as I'm coming because you're living in darkness. And I'm coming because not I'm bringing light, but I am light. That's the same idea, exactly the same thing. But Jesus in the middle of his ministry... Um, and this is down in John. It, it really is in John 14. I, that's the reference I give you. It's also in John 16. Uh, you'll see it there. It's in John 15 also. talks about it. But John 14, Jesus says, I need to do something. I need to leave you. Now, if Cliff and I are having a close personal relationship, and we're living together, and we're really enjoying each other, and I suddenly go, Cliff, I'm out of here. 
Cliff, hopefully, if we've become really good friends, is going to say, that's a bummer. Why do you got to do that, right? I mean, that's, and, and that's literally what the 12 disciples looked and said, what, what do you mean you got to leave? We're just getting a good thing going here, right? Now, I think they liked having somebody around that's powerful. They saw it in the wrong manner at that point, wrong motives, but they still had this same idea of why do you have to leave? Jesus gives an interesting answer, and that's in 14. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. And then it says in 16, he reemphasizes, so he's in this same discourse with him. He says, it is for your good that I'm going away. It doesn't feel like it, Jesus. But Jesus says, you don't realize what the theme is. The theme is that I want a close personal relationship. And if I go away, I can then send the next person of who I am. And he calls it the helper. The Greek word is the Greek word, for those scholars of you, paraclete. And that means advocate or helper um, or intercessor. And he says, and that helper will be with you forever, always, right? And we go from Jesus being Emmanuel, God, with us to where we now have Paraclete, then described as the helper or then said to be the Holy Spirit as God, not God with us, but God in us. How close and personal is that? Now, how many of you have a friend, and not everybody gets this opportunity, but how many of you have a friend that is so close, that is so close, they can even be living far away, don't talk all the time, but when you do talk, it feels like yesterday, and you might call them a, they're so close, what word would we use? They are my soulmate. It's that same idea of we're so close, I can finish their sentences. We're so close that, does that make sense? And that's what Jesus is saying. I'm sending the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, the I am God, to now just not be with you, but in you. Because God wants a close personal relationship. Well, See, that's all been in the past. If we're all Christians, we have come up to this point and say, okay, I get that. Maybe we don't fully get it. We don't fully understand who God is, this Elohim, this El Shaddai, this Yahweh, Jehovah, this Emmanuel, this paraclete. But it doesn't end there. There's another piece to this story. God says, I'm even going to get closer than this. If you go to Revelation, which is a good spot to try to find out where the story ends, right? If you go to Revelation, it says in Revelation 21, Behold, and I saw the holy city, this is John speaking, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God. But now we say, which adjective does God use here? 
No longer will you say, because it could be what? He could be saying, I'm Elohim. He could be saying, probably not El Shaddai, because he'll use God Almighty. That's a good help on that. But it could be that he's using Yahweh, and it's not getting translated but to God, but that's not the word used here. The word here is theos. And theos here is an indication of the Godhead. And the Godhead is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. He's using that triplet, that whole thing, this whole who I am that I've exposed to you now. That's who John is talking about. So, behold, the dwelling place of God, Theos, Trinity, is with who? The dwelling place is with man. Well, in Genesis 1-1, up through the fall in Genesis 3, the dwelling place of God was with man. He walked with Adam. He walked with Eve. God says, that's still my plan. I still want a close personal relationship with you. And I've spent the entire Bible getting us back to where we're ready since I took care of the sin in your life, if you'll simply accept that through Jesus, the atoning sacrifice was perfect and was what I required, and if you'll accept that, then I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. Then we are back in fellowship, and now I can go back to this original, the way I was, and Revelation says that, I want to walk with you. I want to walk face to face with you. I think we gloss over that when we say, when God says, I'm going to walk face to face with you again, we ought to jump up and go, whoa, how is that possible? Because we know what? What happened to Moses? Moses was told, you cannot see me face to face. I have to cover myself, right? You can't see me. But God's saying at the end, no, you get to see me again face to face. Because I want a close personal relationship. The whole scripture is about how do I get back to this point? How can I go from where Adam was, which was in the garden, to where I am in my sinful condition? How can I get back to a right, right relationship so that in Revelation, I get to walk with God every day that I want to? And it's not just God, it's Theos, it's all three we get to enjoy all three. What's even more amazing is it says that the new Jerusalem, and when you study it, it's where God is right now on the throne, Christ next to him. So they are in the new Jerusalem. And it says not that we're going to go up to the new Jerusalem. That's a whole nother study. My small group's been studying heaven, so it's been a really great study. But ultimately, God says, I'm, gonna I'm going to, to uh, create new heavens and new earth but it's not create as if from nothing like he did the original. It's create as in restore. Like when we're told that we're going to have glory. How many are you getting excited about a glorified body, by the way? I'm, I'm getting excited as the older I get, the more I need a glorified body. So I'm going to get this glorified body. And in this glorified body, I'm going to not be created new. I'm going to be renewed, restored. Heavens and the earth, same way. They'll be restored. And God says, with the new heavens and the new earth, I'm actually not going to ask you to come up to me. I am going to come down to where you are because my dwelling place is with man. 
does Scripture prove out that God wants a close personal relationship with every person? Is that a good theme? I would suggest that it's a theme that you can use in discipleship training, trying to help people understand what is life really all about. So we can, the, the, those applications at the end, real quick answers. Is there a God? Yes. If there is a God, what is his nature? You can write themes down there. I would suggest one of the themes you ought to write down is God wants a close personal relationship. He showed that by how he described himself to Adam and then to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then to Moses, and then through Christ, and then through the Holy Spirit, and eventually through coming back down to earth to live and, and walk face to face with us. The third thing, what does God expect? Or what, uh, yeah, what does God expect from me? I wrote down there Matthew 28. What is Matthew 28? Great Commission. Therefore, go and make disciples, right? Baptizing everyone in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you, and lo, I will be with you always. And then the fourth thing I wrote down there is what can we expect from God? What can we expect from God? Based on what you've heard today, what can we expect from God? And I'm going to say not just today, although today counts, but I'm talking about eternity forever. What can we expect from God? That we can have a close personal relationship. Absolutely. That God wants to walk with us face to face. And that's why when you read the Westminster Catechism, what's man's chief aim? Glorify God and enjoy him forever. God says, I want to enjoy you forever. Questions, thoughts. Has it changed how you think about God? I hope it has. I hope it's not just one word God anymore. It's are we talking, by the way, we got real good in scripture because when you have Jehovah, you can have Jehovah Jireh, Jehovah Rapha, Jehovah, and add all those things up. And all they are is adjectives saying, this is Yahweh, who was this divine, couldn't be, we couldn't figure out who he was. And then he had an adjective over to say, oh, he's the sustainer. He's the provider. That's where we come up with all those names for God. I hope you go away saying, God wants a close personal relationship with me. He wants a close personal relationship with everyone that I know. My responsibility is to share that good news. Amen? Amen. Let me pray. Lord, thank you today that you are very clear in Scripture, that you have given us your names multiple ways so that we can begin to understand who you are. But ultimately, your names show how you want to get closer and closer and closer to us. You always wanted to be close to us. You had Adam that way. But sin took us so far away, you've had to slowly draw us back. And I hope that every person here today is a believer, that they've come to the knowledge. If you're here today and you can't say with assurance that you're a Christian, that you have a personal relationship, your need is not to study God's names. Your need is to accept Christ as your Savior because... 1 Corinthians 2.14 tells us that the natural man, the man who does not know Christ, cannot understand the things of the Spirit of God. They are spiritually discerned. You can't get what we're talking about today without really having the Holy Spirit in you and having him illuminate and show you what's going on. But Lord, we thank you that you're clear. We thank you that you want this close personal relationship. We thank you for the salvation you've brought. We thank you for the end of the story 
when you come back down to dwell with us and where we can see you face to face. We'll give you all the praise and the glory for that which you do in us and through us and all God's people said. Amen. Amen. Amen.